things as we travel this earth-shifting sense that transcend all the reason of man. But the things that matter the most in this world, they can never be held in our hand. I believe that the Christ who was slain on the cross has the power to change lives today. For he changed me completely, a new life is mine. That is why by the cross I will stay. I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary. I believe life with its great mysteries surely someday will come to an end but faith will conquer the darkness and death and will lead me at last to my friend I believe in a hill called Mount cross, don't we? We wouldn't be gathered here tonight if we didn't, amen? <clears throat> Nor would we do what we do, give what we give, go where we go and say what we say if it wasn't for that old cross and uh, the price, the penalty that was paid for us on Calvary. Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, <clears throat> we're back in our series on Christ, Acts chapter 8, beginning verse 26, we'll read there. <clears throat> the Bible says, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopian, Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? 
Well, I'll tell you what, there's a mouthful there, isn't it? <clears throat> How important is it that we are prepared to guide people? You know, uh, we get the idea that we really don't have much to say, we don't have much to give, we don't have much to share, but the, that's not the truth at all. If you're saved today, you're born again, you have so much that other people need, and um, you can guide them. You can guide them to Him. Well, that, that's, that's amazing. So Philip has to guide him. Well, how, and, and, and this gentleman understands that. He even knows that. How can I understand this if there's no man that should guide me? Verse 31, and he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip, and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Again, we are very blessed to have the opportunity to have a Bible that defines and shares with us who Jesus Christ is. We didn't live 2,000 years ago and We'd have no recollection of him other than this book. We could have maybe passed down some stories, but we know how that goes. You pass a story down long enough, it's so distorted and it's so different from what it was originally that it really has no similitude to what it was. But we have a more sure word of prophecy. And so we know as we read the Word of God, as we study its pages, that God reveals to us himself. And God, of course, and Jesus are one. And so we are able to learn about Jesus and know about Him and have full confidence as to who He was and what His purpose was and every other aspect of His life. And that's what we said is important today. <clears throat> if we're going to share Christ, and of course, He said, uh, obviously, in John twelve thirty two, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw men unto me. If we're really going to be those who will sit next to those in need, if we're going to be those that will make an impact or a difference in their life, then... We have to elevate Christ. It's really not us. It's not our philosophy. It's not our ideology that needs to be elevated. It's Jesus Christ himself. Amen. And so if we're going to elevate Christ, we need to know something about him. And so we've been taking the last few weeks and discussing or considering Christ. We spoke of his origin. We dealt with his birth. We recognized and, and, and looked at his mission and then the last week, we even considered his life. We said that he lived a simple life, a sorrowful life, a sacrificial life, a spirit-filled life, and a sinless life. Today, we want to take a few moments and look at his death. We understand that his death was not the greatest event on the spiritual calendar. But it certainly ranks pretty high for you and I who are in need of his death, burial, and resurrection. We understand that for God, that wasn't the greatest day in history. We know that to the Lord, it's when His Son is ruling and reigning on the throne of David where He belongs. And He's ultimately where He belongs and all knees are bowing and every tongue is confessing. But I'll tell you what, without that death and that burial and resurrection, we would have no hope today. Amen. 
And so we are grateful indeed for that death. As gruesome as it was, as horrible as it may have been, the reality is, is that today we rejoice knowing that Jesus Christ paid our sin debt. So let's consider his death today. And take just a few moments to walk through the word of God and see what we can learn. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful people that's gathered today for the express purpose to learn and understand your word. Father, they have a desire, Father, to please you, to honor you. We're all at different places in our life, spiritually, maybe even physically, age, and we're not all at the same level or place in our life experience, but Lord, the fact is, is that we're all in need of you and all have a desire to be closer to you. Thank you for these that have gathered for that purpose. Now, Lord, we know that everything that we say and do ought to bring glory to you. It ought to be pleasing in your sight. So, Lord, today, help us to listen intently. Help us to focus. Help us not to be distracted so that, Father, we can glean everything we can from your word and ultimately apply it to our lives. And having learned more about your son, Jesus Christ, we'll be more effective in presenting him to others. Bless us and help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So let's consider his death. First of all, his death was planned. His death was planned. Look, if you will, Mark chapter 11, verse 18. You know, the religious leaders of that day conspired against him. The Sadducees, the scribes, and the priests, they all got together and they had a desire and a longing to do away with this Jesus. I mean, he was upsetting their balance of power. He was ruining their preconceived plans of how things ought to operate and function. They were very uncomfortable with this man, Jesus Christ. And God, Emmanuel. Mark chapter 11, verse 18. And the scribes and chief priests heard it. And saw how they might destroy him, for they feared him. By the way, that's usually why people lash out. It's normally why people do what they do, because they're afraid. Because all people was astonished at his doctrine. They were concerned again. They recognized the fact that people were listening to this man, Jesus, that they were astonished, that they were very impressed with the words that he said and with the outlook that he had. And man, I mean to tell you, it threatened their very way of life. And so they sought how they might destroy him. In the book of Mark, chapter 14, verse 1, the Bible says, After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. It was so bad, Luke chapter 22, verse 2, that if it would not have been for the people at times, they would have certainly done what they chose. The Bible says, And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. They're trying to figure out how to do away with him. If they could have, they'd have just taken him hostage, just tore him down and killed him and done away with him. But I'll tell you what, the people were starting to catch on a little bit. They were a little concerned about their popularity. It wasn't very politically correct at the time. And so they were a little concerned. His death was planned, though. It was planned. But not only that, but his death was prophesied. So we see that the religious leaders of his day had conspired to kill him, to do away with him. But 
they thinking it was their idea were really wrong all, all along. It was always God's plan. Notice, if you would, in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. You know, when somebody thinks that they've done you wrong and it's by their own hand, let me tell you, God has permitted it. I know that's not, that doesn't set well with us, and it doesn't feel good, and we'd like to believe that God would never want anything bad to happen to any of His children, but the reality is, is that God permits things in our life, sometimes very uncomfortable things in our life. I, I, I don't like to uh, <clears throat> even go there myself. I prefer not to have anything uncomfortable in my life, but that's not how God functions nor how He operates. In this particular case, this is His only begotten Son. This is really God in flesh permitting Himself to go through this. Notice in Isaiah 53, 4-6, a very familiar passage. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep are gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord had laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Again, a very powerful passage. And the fact is, is that this was something that long before Jesus ever arrived on the scene, long before he ever was born in a manger, long before the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day had already conspired to kill him, it was already prophesied. Already prophesied. He had borne, he surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Isn't that something? By His stripes we are healed. Think about Psalm, I think about Psalm chapter 22. Look, if you will, in Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. We're going to see that the passage is written, or at least penned, by a man by the name of David. You are very familiar with him, I'm sure. King David. We understand that every passage is of inspiration of the Holy Ghost. We know that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But by, on the other hand, God used people. And in this particular case, he used a king by the name of David. And notice David lived a thousand years before Jesus ever even graced the scene or came upon the scene. And notice what he says in Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. It says, a psalm of David, it says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? Again, this is a, a prophetic psalm. Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? We see verse 7 and 8. Notice again. He says, All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that He would deliver him. Let Him deliver him, seeing He delighteth in him. That's very reminiscent of the cross, is it not? Well, the reason being is because it was a prophecy concerning the cross. Notice chapter 22, verse 16. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Notice in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, just a few verses further. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. I mean, this is certainly, without a doubt, a prophecy concerning the death of Jesus Christ. Amen. A thousand years before he ever arrived on earth. It was already prophesied that he would die. His death was planned. His death was prophesied. Not only that, but his death was very peculiar. Peculiar. Look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Matthew 
It's important for us to realize and remember that this is not just another mere man. This is Jesus Christ, who according to Colossians chapter 1, is creator. Notice how he addresses this issue now. Or should I say, notice how the passage addresses this. And, and, and see what happens here. And I, I believe that you'll see that it was very peculiar, very unusual, very different. I've watched and I've been around people that have died, but I've never experienced this. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. I've never seen the, the, the world affected. I've never seen nature affected directly. In, in, in correlation with a death like Jesus Christ. I mean, this was a very peculiar death. It was a very unusual death. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 50 and 51, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Let me tell you what, <laughs> very peculiar. We have the Creator here dying on earth, the very earth He created. Hanging on a cross, He created. And boy, let me tell you, at His death, things happen that don't normally happen. Very peculiar. Not only was His death planned, not only was it prophesied, not only was it peculiar, but it was permitted. His death was permitted. Look, if you will, in Isaiah again, chapter 53, verse 10 this time. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. <clears throat> Not only <laughs> was it permitted, but according to the Word of God, and this is hard to wrap our minds around, it pleased the Father. It pleased Him. If it pleased Him, then I know He permitted it. I know He allowed it because I know God is powerful enough to say no if He chooses. You know, it's very difficult for us when someone comes to us that's hurting or in sorrow and having great pain and they say, Why did God allow this to happen to me? And you know, we're, we are. We're very quick. We want to be able to say, It wasn't God. It was the devil. It wasn't God. It was sin. It wasn't God, it was... But they said, why did he permit it? And the reality is, he did permit it. I mean, there's really no explaining that away. And in a believer's life especially, understand that God does permit some horrible things to happen ultimately for the good of the person and the whole. We cannot see God's purpose and plan we don't understand His sovereignty to the degree that He does. We don't get the whole picture like He does. And sometimes God permits things in our life to prepare us, to ready us, to temper us, to make us capable and able to deal with what He's going to give us at the next place. It may even be heaven. But sometimes He allows something in our life so that it affects someone else. Boy, that's a hard pill to swallow. That is. That's a tough one. But we have to believe that God is who He claims to be and that He is good. And if we would get our eyes off of this life only and realize that there is an eternity that awaits, all of a sudden everything else begins to come into view. 
Notice in Isaiah 53.10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Earlier in verses 4 through 6, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, it says, Yet he was stricken, smitten of God. Smitten of God. No, wait a second. It was the Romans that hung him on that cross. No, wait a second. It was the scribes, the Pharisees, and the religious leaders that, that got the crowd all riled up and said, Crucify him! Crucify him! Uh, no, it was... He was smitten of God and afflicted. Isn't that amazing? His only begotten Son. And the Bible goes on in verse 10 to say, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Amazing. I'm glad that it pleased the Father to bruise him. I don't uh, in any way take any, any pleasure in considering what Jesus went through, but I am certainly glad that God permitted His only begotten Son to come to Calvary and die on a cross for you and I. I'm glad. His death was permitted. The Father was pleased when He considered the profit of it all. The thought of every one of you and myself being saved today because of the sacrifice of His only begotten. I'm sure He wasn't happy to see His Son suffer. I'm sure it wasn't a wonderful thing to have to turn His back on His only begotten. But hold on, He also was pleased to do so understanding what it would bring forth. Again, His death was prophesied. His death was profitable, though. It was profitable. And again, as we read in Isaiah 53, we see here that He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The bottom line is, is that by His stripes, though, we are healed. Amen. I mean, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. The Lord hath laid upon Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. What blasphemy it is to consider or to think somehow that after everything that God permitted and allowed and was pleased to do, that you and I, on our own and in our own merit and on our own strength, could somehow earn heaven. That is simply blasphemous. To look to God and say, I don't need your son. I can do it myself. That's blasphemy. I mean, think about what a slap in God's face it is for a faith or for a person to look at, some, to, to look at him and say, I will work my hardest. I'll do my best so that I can gain your favor and go to heaven. What we're really saying is I don't need Jesus. I can do it myself. After what the Lord God did on our behalf, permitting and allowing and even being pleased to bruise His own Son for our, on our behalf. Hey, His death was profitable. There is no way whatsoever that you and I could ever earn His favor or gain 
his heaven without Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are, ye, were healed. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Hebrews 9, 28 says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Hebrews 9, 22, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, Without shedding of blood, there's no remission. Oh, there were some things that were purged with water in the Old Testament. But <clears throat> almost all things <clears throat> are, by the law, purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood is no remission. There's no remission of sin without that shedding of blood. Hey, listen, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ was profitable. It made or paved the way for you and I to receive the acceptance and the favor of God. Hey, listen, God's love could not save us. It's not enough. There had to be a sacrifice. <clears throat> there had to be a sacrifice so that we could free God's hands because He is just and He is righteous and therefore He must exact punishment on sin, but because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he was free to open his arms to all mankind and say, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His death was profitable. So we note that <clears throat> his death was planned, it was prophesied. It was peculiar. It was permitted. It was profitable. But finally, let me say that his death was painful. It was painful. It came at a great cost. You know, in the garden, Jesus agonized alone as his disciples slept on. They could hardly keep their eyes open, but he knew what was ahead. He agonized, and as he approached the cruelty of the cross, as he faced the ultimate rejection of the Father, he prayed more earnestly than ever. So much so that the Bible says in Luke twenty-two forty-four, and being in agony, uh, in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I mean, have you ever prayed that earnestly? Have you ever been under that much pressure? I mean, this is a condition that is known as hematidrosis. Basically, what it really just means is bloody sweat. I mean, although it's very rare, it is documented. And under great emotional distress, capillaries in the sweat glands can break. And then they, those sweat glands breaking, uh, the, the, the capillaries in the sweat glands can break, and it mixes the blood into the sweat. So therefore, it appears that you're bleeding or you're, you're actually sweating blood. While he rebuked his disciples for sleeping, 
It was about that time that he heard footsteps. And along the path came, of course, Judas, one of his disciples along with the, the army and the, 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 the guard. And there the soldiers came to take him. Distraught, disappointed, betrayed, and now deserted by his disciples, he's led away. He's taken to the high priest who then begins to try him unjustly. After receiving a number of false accusations and even false testimony, he's convicted of blasphemy and sentenced to death. And with that false charge hanging over his head, with that erroneous conviction at his feet, they begin to abuse him. In Mark chapter 14, verse 65, turn there if you would please. Mark chapter 14, verse 65. What a horrible account. In Mark chapter 14, verse 65, we read, And some began to spit on him. I don't know about you, but that is a humiliating thing. Maybe that's no big deal to you, but that's a big deal to me. Years ago when I was in sixth grade, I let a boy pick on me forever. I was so upset with him. I was so frustrated with him. I was so ticked off, but I'll be frank with you. I was a little bit afraid. He was considered to be the toughest kid in school. And I just didn't know if I wanted to tangle with that kid. And I remember one time he'd done something to me and the teacher saw me and I was so mad. Tears were coming out of my eyes. She said, are you all right, Mark? I said, I'm fine. I'm fine. One day we had a movie after school. Three Stooges go to Mars. They'd sell popcorn and little those mini pops, those little eight-ouncers, glass bottles too. Nothing like a glass bottle. And I remember my brother and I, we went to this. I was actually in fifth grade, and, and he was in sixth. And so I remember sitting beside my brother, and guess who sat right behind us? Yeah. Him and his buddy, and boy, I'll tell you what, he got to smack in my ear and got to messing with us. Man, I mean, I was just fit to be tied. Here I was, getting an opportunity to sit after school and watch a great show. <clears throat> Enjoy some of the greatest things in life, pop and popcorn. And he ruined it all. We slipped on out of the auditorium, and I thought, man, this is terrible. Hopefully, I, I, I lost track of him. I was glad that he, I couldn't find him. He must have hurried out. I was like, man, that's good. We got to get home. And I don't want to get, you know, have to, oh, man, I just, you know, I'll just avoid this guy. Next thing I know, somebody tapped me on the shoulder out there. I turned around and he went, <coughs> spit right in my face. And I remember taking my hand and going, and he started walking away laughing with his buddy. And I mean to tell you, Weeks of frustration just overflowed, and I went buck wild. I went, Aah! I mean, it was a slow motion moment, folks. And I mean, I dove on that kid, and I jumped on him and started pounding his face in the ground. I mean, I mercilessly beat him to a pulp. Kids coming over going, oh, my goodness. Oh, man, that's so-and-so, and he's on bottom getting beat up. I could hear him. I'd kind of come to my senses and thought, wow. Amidst the blood and everything else, I thought, wow. And next thing I know, the principal's there. 
Now, there was a woman principal. And so you're thinking, oh, she's going to be weak. No. I remember she, she had them break it up, and we broke it up, and she said, and so I listened to her, got away, and she took both of us on into the auditorium again, and she stood there with us, and she stood between us, and she said, all right, you want to fight? You want to fight. I've got some boxing gloves right there. We'll go ahead and put them on you and let you fight. You want to fight? She looked at me, and I said, that's up to him. I'm all right with it. And he, she said, what about it? You ready to fight? And he said, no, ma'am, I've had enough. She said, well, then shake hands. We shook hands. I want you to know we walked out of that room friends that day. Actually, we kind of walked home part of the way together. Never had a problem with him again. Never had to worry about that again. But he had spit in my face. Let me tell you something. Every time I read this, I can't help but think about that in my own life. And I think about how humiliating that would have been for the creator of all the universe, for his creation to spit in his face. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him and to say unto him, prophesy. And the serpents, <laughs> serpents did strike him with the palms of their hands. That's not funny, but what I heard was. <clears throat> Don't tell me children aren't listening. They're listening. The soldiers, of course, began to mock and make fun of him, and they sought to humiliate him, and they did a good job of it. They punched and they slapped his head and his face. They even covered his head, asking him to prophesy. Can you imagine that? All right, who are your attackers? Go ahead and tell me my name now, buddy. Who am I? Who's that? Who hit you now? Unable to anticipate the blows, he simply endured the beating. He just took it. That next morning, Jesus was sent to Pilate. And there the priests, they leveled their accusations against the master once again. And he, he answered them not a word. He said not a word. He would not defend himself. And although Pilate found no fault in him, and over and over again, I find no fault in him, due to the political pressure that he felt, due to the potential of his career and seeing it all collapse around him. He went ahead and gave in. He submitted to the demands of the rabid crowd. And therefore he flogged him, stripped of his clothes and his hands tied to a post above his head. The beatings began. The whip they used was called a flagellum and it was a whipping that went across the shoulders and the back and the butt and the thighs and the legs. Of course, it was designed to punish the victim to the very brink of death itself. It was made of several little short, heavy leather strips, and at the end of those leather strips were like little metal balls that were, were lead, and they were attached to it. And, and then, not only that, but uh, near the end of it also, they would place often like shreds of bone or, or maybe even glass there. And when that whip would strike you, it would... It would bruised the exterior, first of all, but then after a number of strikes, it would ultimately break through the skin and the, 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 the metal or the, uh, the, the, the bones and, and the glass would grab hold of the skin and rip it out and rip it off. When it's all said and done, the back is filleted, shredded. Without time to recover, he's made to stand dressed in a robe 
and being jeered by soldiers. A crown of thorns is placed upon his head and a wooden staff, you know, is placed in his hand as a king's scepter. Mark chapter 15, turn there if you would, verse 16. Mark 15, verse 16 through 20. <clears throat> and the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, Praetorium, uh, Praetorium and they, they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple and planted a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees worshipped him. I got to believe. Can you imagine how they will regret that bowing one day? And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put on uh, put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. He was led out to be crucified. You know, the wooden cross used by the Romans was too heavy to be carried by one person. I'm talking about the whole cross. It's believed that the victim was made to bear the attached crossbar. That crossbar weighing approximately 75 to 125 pounds itself. And of course, after a long night of being abused and being mistreated, Jesus Christ collapses under the weight of that cross. <clears throat> upon arriving at the place of crucifixion, Jesus is thrown down upon the ground and actually upon that old piece of wood, that tree, that rough bark tree there. And his hands are then nailed and his feet nailed to that cross. They say that the nails were probably about six inches long and three-eighths of an inch thick at least. And those spikes were driven into him. The pain, of course, being excruciating. But the real horror of crucifixion still lay ahead. Before being lifted up into the air, they attach his arms in a way to where there's leeway in his elbows. They're intentionally left bent. And they're left bent for a reason. Because as soon as he's raised up, his weight comes crashing down upon those nails in his hands. Remember, his feet are also nailed. But there's space between his arms and the nails, and so he droops down. Remember, his back has been shredded already. So that shredded back is scraping across the back of that cross. The, the, the real problem with crucifixion and the, 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 the real horror of it is that when you're stretched in the down position, they claim you cannot get a deep breath. You can't really breathe. So what happens is, is when you come down, the pain is agonizing on the hands. You push up with your feet and you take a breath, but then the pain is so bad in your feet that you collapse down upon your hands again. And each time you're rising and falling upon the very back that had been shredded by the cat of nine tails. A horrible cycle of pain. Hanging by the arms, unable to breathe, pushing up with the feet, to inhale, and then slumping down once again. On and on and on and on it goes. This process went on for hours as Jesus hung there in agony, suffering for the sin of the world. But still greater than the agony he experienced on that cruel cross was the rejection that he endured by the Father. 
See, in Matthew 27, 46, the Bible says, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This was truly the consequence of sin. It was separation from God. And this is the cup that Jesus dreaded to partake more than any. That's the cup he spoke of. Finally, after all the torture, all the agony, all the rejection and the horror, we hear the cry of Jesus in John 19.30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Painful. Painful. Agonizing. You know, I suppose what we're to really understand, though, of everything that we know about this death, I mean, it was planned, yes. It was prophesied. It was peculiar. It was permitted. It was profitable. And certainly it was painful. I suppose one of the greatest things to truly understand about his death is that Jesus willingly laid down his life. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> John chapter 10, verse 18. Look there, would you please? As we close this. I mean, he willingly permitted this in his life. Oh, we say God, God permitted it. God smit him, smote him. Yes, he did, but hold on. Jesus is God and their God, the God of creation, literally submitted himself to the cross. He allowed himself to die. He laid his life down. John 10, 18, he says, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. <laughs> I can only imagine that those Romans and, and those, the, the council that day, the Jewish council thought, We finally did it. He's gone. We've rid ourselves of this apostate. They did nothing. He willingly laid down his life. In Philippians 2.8, the Bible says, In being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He knew what he was going to face. He understood what it meant when he came. He knew as he arrived here upon earth, as he submitted himself to flesh, that it meant a cruel cross. You know, Jesus faced death alone. He faced it all alone. Even his Father in heaven turned his back on him because he bore the sin, our sin, in his own body on the tree. But you know, what's so wonderful is that no one need die alone again. No, Psalm chapter 23, verse 4 the psalmist again says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. You know that he'll be with you. He's in you, and he'll be with you. In Christ we are ushered sweetly into heaven when we close our eyes in death. There's a song that says, I won't have to cross Jordan alone. It goes like this. When I come to the river, 
At ending of day, when the last winds of sorrow have blown, there'll be somebody waiting to show me the way. I won't have to cross Jordan alone. I won't have to cross Jordan alone. Jesus died for my sins to atone. When the darkness I see, he'll be waiting for me. I won't have to cross Jordan alone. You know what? I don't have to cross Jordan alone and neither do you. Because he died. Boy, the death of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing to know something about as we begin to try to reach the world with the gospel, as we seek to share Him with a lost and dying world, the death of Jesus Christ. Father, we come to You. We thank You again, Lord, for all that You have done for us. We're such a needy people, and 